so. I hope you will not wish you had never decided to buy. You know, Galinet, said Mannering, you sound almost as if you believed the legend. As if I do, the little man flared up again. Who am I to question it? Those who have owned the Delamont Emeralds lose their friends. Did not Napoleon have them, as one by one his friends deserted him? Did not the sad, unhappy Josephine know their influence? Have they not been owned by three noble families of France, who have been forced to rely on their friends when adversity came, and who were betrayed? Did not the great American Mansoul buy them, only to find himself ruined, friendless, and deserted? In the three years since Mansoul died, they have been awaiting a man to defy the legend. Monsieur, I will make you the wager. In six months you will wish you had not seen the emeralds of discord. If I stay here much longer, you'll almost convince me. Mannering replaced the emeralds in their case, sat down, and took out a checkbook. He signed one for fifteen thousand pounds and handed it to the Frenchman. I think I'll take them with me. I shall have them packed, said Galinet, pressing a bell for an assistant. It is a pleasure always to sell to you, monsieur. Never once have I known you object to a price. As soon as you overcharge, I'll object. Anton came in, short, sleek, swarthy, took the case, bowed, and went out silently. Mannering and the jewel merchant chatted for ten minutes before Mannering left the shop and walked in the blazing sunshine, seeing beyond the railings of the Tuileries Gardens the riotous confusion of mid-spring flowers. It was a year since he'd been in Paris, but he was not likely to forget what had brought him then. Events had forced him into the busiest month of his career as the Baron. In the back streets of the Montmartre district he had made friends as well as enemies in his quest for the five jewels of Castilla. Somewhere among that warren of alleys was a man who had tried to knife him, yet lived to become a devoted friend. He felt the pressure of the case against his side. Sooner or later an emergency would come which would force him to pit his wits against the police again, to risk his liberty if not his life. Three times the Baron had retired. Three times fate had brought him back to the arena. Reputed dilettante, wealthy bachelor, as well known in Paris and the Riviera as in London, engaged, so rumour had it, to Lorna, only daughter of Lord Fauntley, there was always the ghost of the past, of the Baron at Mannering's shoulder. All over the world were people who knew his identity as the Baron. The police of four countries had unsolved jewel robberies on their records. In both England and France there were detectives who knew the Baron but lacked the proof to act against him. He was vaguely disturbed this morning. Galinet's exaggerated forebodings about the Delamont Emeralds might be the cause, or else the sharpness of the recollection of his last trip to Paris. He walked briskly towards the Champs-Élysées, heedless of the noisy traffic, the flash of the gendarme's white baton and the shrill call of his whistle, heedless of the bright canopies of the cafés, all well filled, of the rattling single-decker buses, the sometimes curious and frequently inviting glances from the invariably well-dressed women who passed by him. And as he walked, a nondescript-looking man of medium height followed him, always on the opposite side of the road, and always fifty yards behind. From the window of a third-floor room at l'Hôtel Cuma, in a side street off the Avenue de l'Opéra, came the harsh blare of traffic, 
Sharp footfalls pattered to and fro. Now and again a voice was raised in greeting, none of which disturbed the man lying fully dressed on the double bed. His sharp features were attractive, even if the mouth was thin and straight and the chin suggested weakness. His dark, crinkly hair was brushed straight back from a wide forehead. His eyes were opened and he stared at a mark on the papered ceiling with his hands behind his head, his legs wide apart. On the white counterpane there were two dark smudges made by the heels of his shoes. Monsieur Paul Rontu was at ease. A clock outside struck eleven, the half-hour, noon. Monsieur Rontu stayed where he was, although occasionally moistened his lips several times with his tongue. As the last chime of midday died away, he sighed, moved his hands, swung his legs to the floor. He proved to be broad and well-filled, even for his six feet. His walk to the bed.